So the research that we're conducting and others are conducting as well on gene-by-environment interactions will lay the foundation for personalized medicine, which entails an individualized prevention and treatment approach informing what intervention or, or what would work best based on the individual's biological and psychological as well as an environmental profile. Yeah, I mean, as Tora already um, described, I think the, the, the promise is really that we can do personalized intervention and prevention programs for patients and maybe avoid the development of a disease or the disease actually becomes chronic. That's Dr. Torhildor Haldorstadt here and Dr. Elizabeth Binder. They join us to talk about the research on the mental health development of children and adolescents. Their work appears in the August 2019 issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. I'm Michael Roy, executive editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry, and this is AJP Audio. Dr. Torhildor Haldorstadt here and Dr. Elizabeth Binder are co-authors of two articles in our August issue. Their first article is titled, Polygenic Risk, Predicting Depression Outcomes in Clinical and Epidemiological Cohorts of Youths. And their second article is titled, Neurobiology of Self-Regulation, Longitudinal Influence of FKBP5 and Intimate Partner Violence on Emotional and Cognitive Development in Childhood. Dr. Binder is Director of the Department of Translational Research in Psychiatry at the Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry in Munich. She also holds an appointment as professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. Her research aims to identify the molecular moderators of the response to environmental factors. She studies how such factors influence the pathways to mental illness with the aim to use this information for novel prevention and treatment strategies. Dr. Haldor is not here was a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry and at the University of Iceland. She'll be starting as an assistant professor at Reykjavik University this fall. Her research interests center around understanding the environmental and genetic factors that contribute to psychopathology in youths, with the ultimate goal of developing novel and more effective preventive and treatment interventions. Dr. Bender, Dr. Haldor is not here. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for, thank for having you. us. You bet. Now, yeah, thank you. Of course, our pleasure. Now, you have two articles in our August issue. And in the first article, you aim to build on a genome-wide association study of more than 400,000 adults. And that study identified genetic components that were associated with major depressive disorder. Your goal was to apply these data on genetic risk factors to a polygenic risk score for depression and to use that depression PRS to predict risk in a clinical sample of young people. You also accounted for interaction with childhood abuse. So first, could you explain the value of polygenic risk scores in this kind of effort to identify risk factors and symptoms of depression in young people? Of course I can. This is Elizabeth Binder. Um, and I would first like to point out that uh, what is very important in this work is that it's teamwork. And so I would first like to thank our collaborators in Munich, um, Gertrude de Kerner, as well as at Emory University at Craighead, and collaborators in Portugal, Anna Matos, the group in Helsinki, um, headed by Katri Reikonen, and Iceland um, by Eric Johannesson. So. I think what is, has been a revolution also in genetics 
has been that we understand that we can condense information from these very large genome-wide association studies in single numbers, these so-called polygenic risk scores. And these actually allow us to summarize the information that we have on genetic risk for a certain phenotype. And so what we need to do is to get the initial information, like what are the genetic variants that actually contribute to risk for a certain phenotype. And so for this, we actually need very large samples because we know that every single genetic variant actually only contributes very little to the individual risk here. So we need these very large samples, but we can then take this information and apply it to smaller samples by using the weight that's defined in these very large studies to get an idea of how strong the specific genetic risk from the large study would actually uh, be predictive in a new sample. And we can use this information from these large samples with very heterogeneous phenotypes like the one that we actually used. So the study that we used was a large international effort um, actually combining patients with depression that were defined very strictly by inpatient admission diagnostic instruments, but also by self-report. So a rather heterogeneous phenotype that relates to depressive symptoms. And it was also assessed in, uh, in adults. And so what we wanted to know, can we take these information from large-scale studies that have to sort of be heterogeneous just to achieve the numbers that are needed, can we apply that to a different age range, uh, like in our case, um, children and adolescents? Can we apply that to depression assessed in different ways, one by psychiatrists, by the children themselves as a self-report, but also by the report of the parents. And also, would this risk score be informative across different levels of severity of depression, from children that have to be admitted to a psychiatric inpatient unit to um, the general population with self-reported depressive symptoms. So for us, we see this as a proof of concept. Can we use these polygenic scores that are derived from these large studies with, with a, a more sort of diffuse phenotype to our very specific questions? And I think this is very important to understand whether this is possible or not, because such polygenic risk scores can be tremendously helpful. So if indeed um, we could identify those children at highest risk to develop depression in the future, uh, we could actually then um, intervene in a more targeted way and also earlier than waiting until depressive symptoms actually become apparent um, and maybe help these children uh, to not develop depressive symptoms at all. And I think this would be the ultimate goal that we want to achieve, but for this, this first step was very important for us to understand, can we use adult, large sample, sort of broad phenotype derived polygenic risk scores and apply it to different age ranges and to different settings. And I think this is why we were using and so interested in using and evaluating these polygenic risk scores. Your second article in the August issue looked at the interaction of genes involved in regulating stress and exposure in early life to stressful events. You wanted to find out whether exposure in early life to intimate partner violence, which is a particular kind of stress, affected emotional and cognitive development. Now, why did you want to study this issue? 
Yeah, thank you. So this uh, was teamwork as well. So when we were conducting this study, we conducted it with Dunja Kurtik, uh, Kurtik and Bestra Misek Muller at the Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry, but also Clancy Blair at New York University. And he's also last author with Elizabeth and a corresponding author. So to do this study, we use data from the Family Life Project. So this is a birth cohort recruited from rural communities in Pennsylvania and North Carolina that's been tracked from birth to adolescence now. So we were interested in investigating what factors contribute to, like you said, the emotional and cognitive development of children who've been exposed to intimate partner violence. But first, I just want to clarify what intimate partner violence is. So it's a very common form of domestic violence it specifically refers to a pattern of behavior in which one intimate partner threatens, intimidates, isolates, coerces, or even uses emotional, sexual, or economic abuse to control the other partner. And like I said, this is very common. Actually, a recent study showed that over 16% of children have witnessed intimate partner violence at least once in their lifetime. And it's also been associated with a wide range of negative outcomes for the children including poor academic achievement and also an increased risk of psychiatric symptoms down the line. But importantly, not all children who are exposed to early life stressors, such as intimate partner violence, actually go on to develop any of these negative outcomes, suggesting that there's, there are individual differences in genetic vulnerability to such stressors. And in this study, we used maternal report of intimate partner violence within the first two years of the child's life, so it's very early on. And we wanted to investigate, like I said, if this interacted with a specific gene. So we looked at FKBP5, which is a gene involved in regulating stress, to see if we could use that to predict the long-term outcomes of these children. And that's exactly what we did. Okay, well then let's get to the results of your work. Now, what were some of the key points from each study that you and your co-authors found? Yeah, so I'll start out with the gene by environment interaction study since I was just talking about it. We found that children with a specific genotype of FKBP5, specifically the minor allele carriers, who were exposed to intimate partner violence prior to the age of two, appear to have a disruption in self-regulation abilities very early on which then had cascading effects on emotional and cognitive outcomes into adolescence. And I just want to note that self-regulation includes emotion regulation in stressful situations and is, has been found to be predictive of later outcomes. So in this study, we found that the children who were of this risk genotype and had the exposure to intimate partner violence, they had higher cortisol for a longer period of time after a stress paradigm but they also had greater emotional reactivity after this stressor, starting from 15 months of age, and then we measured them again at 24 months with this specific paradigm and found the same pattern. And then between the ages of three to five, they also had greater difficulties with executive functioning. And once they started primary school, they had higher emotional and behavioral problems, as well as lower academic achievement than those of a different genotype or those who had not been exposed to this stressor. So this means that targeting self-regulation abilities early on in these children who have been exposed to intimate partner violence and carry this specific genotype may be particularly helpful in getting their developmental tra trajectories back on track towards good academic and mental health outcomes. 
So that was the gene by environment study. So then for the polygenic risk score of depression, like Elizabeth mentioned, so we, we created that from a very large sample of adults with and without depression. And we wanted to see if we could predict both clinical levels of depression, but also depressive symptoms in children and adolescents. So we had three independent cohorts to do this that vary considerably in terms of depression status and symptoms, but then also in age and nationality. So the first cohort that we looked at was a German cohort. So these were children and adolescents recruited from inpatient as well as outpatient psychiatric clinics in Germany. And we found that the polygenic risk score predicted if the child met diagnostic criteria for depression, but we also found that the polygenic risk score predicted the severity of depressive symptoms and the age of onset. onset. So there was a positive relationship between the case control status, meaning that the, the, the children who carried a higher level of polygenic risk score were also more likely to be in the case group, so have a diagnostic or have a, a or meeting diagnostic criteria for depression. But then in terms of age of onset, there was a negative relationship. So those who were higher in terms of the polygenic risk score were more likely to have an earlier age of onset for the depressive disorder. But then we applied the polygenic risk score also to two community samples or cohorts. So one was Portuguese adolescents, and the other was a cohort of Finnish children between the ages of 8 and 11. And again, we found that the polygenic risk score is associated with depressive symptoms in that higher polygenic risk scores coincided with higher depressive symptoms in the children as well. But I do want to note that the predictive validity of the polygenic risk score is still very low. So it was more so a, a proof of concept uh, type of study to show that this score that was derived from adults could be applied to children as well. As you've mentioned, the interaction of genes in the environment can have a profound role in how children develop. How can researchers, clinicians, and other mental health professionals apply in their own work what you've reported? So the research that we're conducting and others are conducting as well on gene-by-environment interactions will lay the foundation for personalized medicine, which entails an individualized prevention and treatment approach informing what intervention or, or what would work best based on the individual's biological and psychological as well as an environmental profile. But right now, we are still just accumulating data and knowledge on how to do this effectively. So for instance, with the genetics components of these studies, the variance is very small that we're able to explain. So it's not clinically relevant as is, but this will improve with continued research and studies. So what we need to do right now is multi-level studies that are comprised of a large number of participants and have them coincide with molecular studies that can give us insight into the functionality of these genes and how they are differentially expressed under different circumstances. So we still have a long road ahead of us in terms of applying them effectively to clinical practice, but we can hopefully do that in the near future. So if we apply or if we integrate these findings into clinical practice or when we do, it's going to be very promising because we can have very targeted interventions for children we know that are at risk. So in the study that I just described, the gene by environment study uh, looking at FKBP5 and intimate partner violence, we found that it predicted a cascade of poor outcomes from infancy to adolescence. 
So just using these findings or building on them, we could, uh, this is a, an opening for pro healthcare professionals to come in at a very early time point with targeted interventions for this risk group and get them back on track to more adaptive outcomes. So you've talked about some challenges and some progress involved in the study of how genes and the environment interact to influence mental health. What do you think the future holds for this line of research and in clinical care? Yeah, I mean, as Tora already um, described, I think the, the, the promise is really that we can do personalized intervention and prevention programs for patients and maybe avoid the development of a disease or the disease actually becomes chronic. But I think to do that, as also already mentioned, we need more large prospective longitudinal studies. So it's very clear that we need to start or understand the interaction of genes and environment very early on and also with environments that happen during development. And this can be as early as during pregnancy. So really being able to have cores where we track risk factors during pregnancy, infancy, childhood, adolescence, uh, and then see how that actually relates to risk um, throughout life also uh, into adulthood. So having these studies will be very important. So if we think about gene environment studies, I think where we are very good at is understanding or at least measuring the genetic variation. This is very straightforward, it's cheap. We now do it with specific arrays, but there are sequencing methods that get cheaper and cheaper every year so that it's foreseeable that we can actually have genome-wide sequencing for every patient in a small amount of time for low cost. Where the challenge ahead of us lies is that we actually get an objective evaluation of all the environmental factors. So in our studies, we focus on a very specific type um, of environmental stressor, intimate partner violence. In one study and the other one was self-reported child abuse uh, and maltreatment. But of course, there are other environments that also contribute to risk. And it's probably the sum of these environments and the timing of these environments that will be very important. So what we need to understand is which environments are important and how can we measure them more objectively than just the self-report that we have used, for example, for childhood trauma. So this is one thing, understanding the complexity of the environment better and how to measure it in an objective way. And I think their developments, technological developments, uh, will help us, such as smart devices, uh, geocoding, for example, and other things where we can bring all this environmental information together. The other factor that I think we have seen, especially from the study uh, with FKBP5, that it's very important that we not only understand the sort of outcome of gene and environment interactions on reported symptoms, but also on other levels of the body. That means physiological and biological responses to these environmental challenges. And so this was key in the study with FKBP5 that we started to understand that these children with the dual risk, the genetic risk and then the environmental risk factor actually had problems 
to down-regulate the stress response after the stressor was over. So at every stressor, these children actually had a prolonged stress response that made it more difficult for them to emotionally regulate themselves and then had all these cascading events over the development that Tora has described. So I think we need to be able to do these physiological measures longitudinally and at many time points. And also here, technological advances are coming. We can measure using smart devices our heart rate, heart rate variability. We can measure autonomic responses. And I think there are developments also where maybe we can measure cortisol responses just by a lick on a certain ring that has a sensor for cortisol in the saliva. So I think there are, there are very exciting um, developments where we can actually apply these measures in, in larger cohorts. And once we have this knowledge, we also need to test whether this knowledge, while it's very interesting and helps us understand risk, is also going to be able to make prevention more efficient. So we need studies that actually stratify individuals by these risk factors and then uh, randomize them into specific intervention or no intervention so that we can actually see whether having this information is a benefit and that we can have these targeted preventive strategies that would then hopefully reduce the risk for uh, this subgroup of individuals to actually suffer from psychiatric disorders later in life or psychiatric problems later in life. So I think there's still a lot of work to do, but the future definitely, or the promise for the future definitely is that we can better target prevention strategies for patients. Dr. Elizabeth Binder and Dr. Torhildor Haldor is here, co-authors of two articles in our August issue on the mental health development of children and adolescents. Thank you both for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yes, yeah, thank you for having us. This concludes this episode of AJP Audio. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to it. Please also visit our website, ajp.psychiatryonline.org, to check out trending articles, find CME courses, and watch videos highlighting some of our other articles. Be sure to check out two other podcasts from APA Publishing. Psychiatry Unbound, our newest podcast is APA Publishing's Books Podcast. It's hosted by Dr. Laura Roberts, Editor-in-Chief of APA Books. You can hear the voices behind the most prominent scholarship in the field of psychiatry today. Also check out From Pages to Practice, which reviews the latest research published in the journal Psychiatric Services. It's hosted by Dr. Lisa Dixon, Editor-in-Chief of the journal, along with Dr. Josh Bearson. You can find these podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on the podcast page of the American Psychiatric Association's website. Next month in the podcast, we'll talk with Christina Mangurian of the University of California, San Francisco, and Jessica Gold of Washington University in St. Louis about their commentary on sexual harassment and gender discrimination in the healthcare workplace. We hope you'll join us too. Thank you for listening.